0: So it's uh, question and answer time. Um, we'll see how many questions we, we get through here before uh, lunch time. If you a- a put a question in the box, and thank you to everyone who did, um, we may not get to answer your question just because of time and various things. Um, you may want to come and uh, ask that question to Rupert over l- lunch or whatever. Um, or there, there may be even some questions that would be best to just discuss at your tables, or maybe even to speak to someone in your your church or whatever about that, a church leader perhaps. But we're going to get stuck in here to uh, some questions about judges, Rupert. Um, A question here, were the judges saved by Jesus as we understand it? How were they saved?
1: Am I on here? Right, Grant. Yeah, I mean, that's a question about all Old Testament saints. Uh, and um, what we know is that they were justified by faith because they trusted what God had revealed to them um, and uh, they put their confidence uh, in what uh, God had revealed at that time but all men are only put right through the blood of Christ so that all the sacrificial system in the whole Old Testament was pointing forward to Christ uh, and when we take the Lord's Supper we're looking back to Christ and when we preach the gospel we're proclaiming Christ Um, and the Old Testament saint uh, trusted in God and acted in faith they offered sacrifices um, and they didn't fully understand exactly how all that would work but just as Abraham was justified by faith he believed God we too are justified by faith so the point of Christ actually dying uh, at a point in time covers the sins of all those who went before and all those who came after. Uh, So they're justified by Christ just as we are.
0: And another related question, what is the difference between propitiation and expiation?
1: Okay. (laughs) Just because we're on the the topic. Okay. Uh, propitiation is uh the kind of full-blown word and probably the more helpful word except no one understands it unless it's explained and it's basically that when christ died you see what did christ die to do um the kind of people who take uh the bible the liberal theologians approach is basically to see the death of christ as an example an example to us the heroic man who gives himself and we ought to give ourselves for the benefit of others well is that true at all well yes there is some truth you know take up your cross and follow me says Christ so there is some element in which yes the self-giving of Jesus is an example husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her wow if you're a husband you've got a job on your hands Um, but that is not the essence of what Christ came to do and the word propitiation is about Christ's suffering to take the wrath of God from us and that is actually a key concept that our problem is is not that we just need to live a better life our problem is that however good a life we live we actually alter, uh, fall short in, every sort of, in all sorts of ways we don't even realize, let alone the ways we do realize. And what we, need, uh, what we are facing is before God, we have no, um, no plea to cleanse our own sins away, but Christ has done everything we need. So the propitiation is actually, the, 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 he is the one who took away wrath, Sometimes people use the word expiation, um, but propitiation is the fuller word because it refers to the wrath of God being satisfied on Christ and fully met by Christ, so I am fully forgiven. So in propitiation is an important concept.
0: Okay. um, There was a few questions regarding Deborah being a female judge in Israel. Yeah. Um, Was she a spiritual leader of Israel? Was she a civil leader? How does this fit with Timothy and Corinthians and the whole church uh, leadership um, question?
1: Yeah, it is interesting how different cultures, how culture uh, affects the way that we look at a a story um, in the Bible. I was in a group discussing that whole Deborah Barak um, with a group of po- folk. There was a Nigerian there, lovely brother, full of zeal and fire, uh, and there were also a number of others and, and quite a lot, obviously, from from the UK. And the questions that bothered them about the passage were completely different. Uh, and our Nigerian brother had, you know, uh, the, the, the others were very bothered about Deborah and the significance of the discussion about the role of women in the church, whereas our Nigerian brother, you know, it really wasn't an issue. Uh, but that was because the issues in his culture, he's, you know, his church has been burnt down by Muslims. He, he is facing a different set of issues. Um, and that was fascinating, sitting there, realising uh, how differently the issues in the passage seem to matter because of the different culture. Now, actually, the Bible's transcultural. So it's not just addressing your culture, it's addressing all cultures and we have blind spots just as people from other cultures have blind spots as that's one of the reasons it's helpful to have folk from other countries around because actually they will see things we don't see so readily and they'll see challenges that we wouldn't have occurred to us particularly. So to answer the question, does Deborah tell us a great deal that is relevant to the uh, discussion about Uh, The role of women in the church. The answer is uh, no, she was not in a New Testament situation, she was not a church leader. However, there is clearly a principle there that God could use a woman in a remarkable way and there have been women who have been used in remarkable ways. Uh, I do think the New Testament it's it's very important that we submit our minds and our hearts to what scripture says and don't use one part of scripture to knock out another part. Do you know, if you handle the Bible like that, you end up in all sorts of mess. So it seems to me what is clearly said in, uh, I think there's another principle, There there are things that are clearly expressed and things that are rather more hazy. So how you apply Deborah who is a prophetess, which we're not, in the Old Testament context, which we're not, in Old Testament Israel, which we're not. I mean, should women be judges? I mean, is that the issue? Well, actually, we see we're asking different questions from Deborah that Deborah is not designed to answer. Um, Does God gift women? Yes. Um, What is the appropriate leadership in a, a New Testament church? I think we need to be guided by the clear New Testament statements which honor the role of women but say that certain key roles of leadership and headship and the principle in the Bible of headship is those who God has given responsibility to take responsibility. It's not, headship is not about people strutting around. It's about people taking responsibility before God for others. Certain of those, the key teaching role is reserved by God's wisdom for men. That doesn't mean that women don't teach, because actually women have uh, some tremendously significant role in teaching, notably in their own families, but also we're all commanded to admonish one another in the light of Scripture. Uh, and my wife frequently keeps me from error and hits me over the head when I need it, in the, verbally. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and. Um, yeah, so, so I think the trouble is with Deborah is that people can latch hold of something like Deborah and then extrapolate from it a whole series of things which Deborah was not there to teach us about. Okay. So I know that's not a full answer. You really need to go to the New Testament to get a fuller answer. Okay. Um, <clears throat> there's a
0: lot of pressure put on Christians these days, especially leaders, to be examples of perfection, but it would seem that the book of Judges gives us more examples of those who (coughs) were repented and those who trusted in the Lord. Um, Where do we find the balance in this from in our Christian lives?
1: Um, I think uh, the Apostle Paul speaks to that issue I think very powerfully in Philippians um, where uh, if you, Philippians three is a tremendous passage about what he used to trust in which is all the things that he was and did and how he came to count all that as rubbish so that he might gain Christ but it isn't just about his standing in Christ he then says I want to know Christ well you already know him don't you well the Apostle Paul is saying I want to know him it's a present continuous longing to know christ there is more to know of christ than simply putting your faith in him when you first trust him i want to know christ the power of his resurrection the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death uh, to attain to the resurrection from the dead Uh, he's got a great longing to go on then he says not that i've already obtained all this or i have already been made perfect but i press on to take hold of that for which christ jesus took hold of me brothers I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus so the, the apostle himself it's not just the judges recognizes he is not the perfect article even though he are an apostle of Christ okay but his his goal is to please Christ is to know Christ is to follow Christ and that should be, there, there isn't a kind of balance. You know, how bad can I be? Uh, and how good do I have to be? No, you, that that's not what you're after. You're after Christ. Make Christ your goal. And actually everything else fits into place.
0: Very good. Um, very serious question here. Probably asked by a dear brother. In light of Samson's story, how should Christians best approach dating? Can we learn anything from Samson's approach? <laughs> Here, this, this might be a serious question from somebody.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, uh, you can learn something in the sense of what not to do. <laughs> um, he is not meant to be there. He's not there to function as a model uh, for you to go dating. Um, I think it, uh, he is clearly actually a very tragic warning and a very serious warning and a very sobering warning. Don't mess with sex and relationships. Uh, he did and it destroyed him now God was merciful to him but wow he paid a horrible cost and and you see it's one of Satan in our culture this particularly but it's always been true in human society this is one of Satan's great hooks isn't it sexual immorality and he dresses it up in so many ways that we only see the wriggling worm and we don't see the hook Um, so I I don't mean by that to speak disparagingly of relationships or sex this is God's design but it's God's design for a particular context only and God is the one who's more interested than you are that if he intends you to marry you right marry the right person and God can lead you to that Uh, but don't be uh, you need to be very alert to Satan's processes and he leads you down a slippery slope. Um, but we have the spirit within us who's the spirit of holiness, and purity. Uh, there is some very, do you know, um, oh, Josh. Joshua Harris. Josh Harris, uh, thank you. Josh Harris, he's written a book. Uh, I, I, I Kissed Dating, dating goodbye. goodbye. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and uh, I mean, I think I there's I some very that. helpful things. I tell you, there are a lot more helpful books about relationships now than there ever used to be, at least when I was I was younger. Uh, so Josh Harris has a lot of very sensible things to say, and, and so do other people. Mm-hmm. Okay, um,
0: Samson's prayer at the end of his life didn't appear to mention any repentance, and he seemed to be more concerned about vengeance for his eyes than anything else. Does this make, <laughs> does this make God sound like a vengeful God? Um, because he, he, he was, you know, about his eyes, it wasn't that important. Um, could people pray for the destruction of a nation
1: over their humiliation? That's of okay. right two questions. Right. Um, what did you say about vengeance? There was a phrase there in the middle of that question.
0: God's.
1: Is God a God of vengeance?
0: Yeah, does, does Samson's
1: prayer appear yep. to see you know, okay. God
0: in a vengeful manner because he was right, okay. bringing retribution? L- l- let's
1: take Samson's the concept baby. of God and vengeance. Uh, the Bible actually says vengeance belongs to God. Vengeance is God's business. He's the only person who can handle vengeance. Okay. There is such a thing as a right judgment on evil things that have happened. Uh, But vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So there is such a thing. You know, when you cry out for justice, when something terrible happens and you say, this is absolutely appalling. There ought to be some uh, judgment. Um, you're quite right, and God's the only person who can justly do it. Now, coming back to Samson, um, when Samson prays, uh, uh, yes, he he is he is seeking God to act in regard to his eyes, but. God clearly has a much bigger agenda, doesn't he? All the way through Samson's stories, as Samson is pursuing his objectives, which are pretty often skewed. But God is using him to to achieve his objectives, which are much greater. So I, I do think there's a mixture there, uh, that that Samson was praying for a lesser reason, and God answered for a greater reason. But isn't it merciful? I mean, imagine God only answered your prayers when you had a proper theology behind them you know how many prayers of yours would he get would get answered um and i think it is wonderful that god answered that prayer and i think that the way he addressed god and cried out to god speaks of a heart that was truly uh broken from the self confidence of the man who was in the earlier part of the chapter he is a man who has who is Completely turned from that you know, great I can cope by myself to a, a, a tremendous sense of his need of God uh, we can't read God at, you See, part of the problem with Old Testament narrative is you can get drawn down the road of kind of reading motives and things that we're not told so we're not told Samson's exact total state of heart and mind what we are told is what God did when he prayed and goodness me, um, God answered him. Uh, so I'll I'll stick with what God did because that shows that God had His purpose going on there. I can't speculate altogether about other things.
0: Okay, um, a few questions, um, kind of relating to uh, war and the brutality. That, that we see in the book of Judges and indeed in other parts of the Old Testament but I suppose uh, a good maybe summary one is how are the Bible accounts of killing in God's name the destruction of the Canaanites for example any different to what IS are proclaiming to be doing in God's name and how do you explain this to a non-Christian or to, to those around us
1: okay uh, right, good, a good question and a very relevant question if you're going to preach anything like Judges, obviously. Um, uh, it, the, the big, uh, so this is a huge issue in our culture for people coming to uh, to to the Old Testament particularly. Um, but uh, the New Testament teaches judgment just before we um, go back into Judges. Uh, no one spoke of hell more often than Jesus. Uh, The New Testament teaches a final judgment of every single human being, and it teaches a place of eternal destruction. So don't let people think, oh, you know, Jesus is all sort of so so nice and cuddly, and the God of the Old Testament is some ogre. Um, Actually, the most terrible judgment is the judgment yet to come, which will make the judgment of the Canaanites and everything and everybody else seem very small uh, you know who warned you to flee from the wrath to come was one of John the Baptist unexpected response to all these pe- people queuing up to be baptized we normally say how wonderful you want to be baptized he said who warned you to flee from the wrath to come you brood of vipers uh, because he's seeing something of their hearts and he knows that this that they haven't quite gotten understood what what is going on but you see there is a wrath to come and that is the wrath to fear okay that's the wrath to fear however in the Old Testament there are some signal reminders that God is a God who judges Sodom and Gomorrah is another case uh, and the Canaanites is another case the thing about it is this is that if you believe in God You have to let God be God. And we are constantly, as sinful human beings, reducing God. We may even be in church. And we have a God who we would like to fit into our thinking and to be like what we want. And the result is you're not dealing with God at all. You're just dealing with a figment of your imagination. That's why we need the Bible to keep reminding us what the living God is like. So, um the underlying question is does God have a right to judge people does God have a right in this life to take life and the answer because he gave life is yes he does he does Uh, and God will judge all human beings not just Canaanites but his judgment on the Canaanites was a specific judgment in an unusual judgment, just as the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, God doesn't destroy Las Vegas, but I suspect Las Vegas is, you know, worthy of judgment, as any place is. Um, But there are times when he does, and the Bible keeps referring back to Sodom and Gomorrah as a warning of what is to come. So the big issue for you and me and for the people you're talking to is that judgment isn't some intellectual thing of ancient history. Uh, judgment is is what God is going to do and what God is doing because Romans 1 talks about the judgments of God that are already being worked out and revealed in this life um, so does that sweep away all the problems no it, it doesn't but it's where you must begin with the character of God and the right of God to judge so the Israelites did I mean the Israelites are told several times that they were agents of God's judgment. It wasn't because they were more righteous. Okay, it was because of the extreme wickedness. It wasn't because they were righteous. It was because of the extreme wickedness of the Canaanites. And that's a judgment God made. And if God is going to be God, you're going to have to say to God, I'll accept, I recognize your perfect wisdom so God's judgment on the Canaanites was just as his judgments always are it's our judgments that are skewed, not God so is God going to be God? one of the reasons we need the Old Testament is to teach us that God is God and not a dressed up 21st century Englishman or Irishman or whatever you want him to be uh, he is God and we tremble before such a God and rejoice that such a God actually loves sinners and you know we got a hold to things like uh, 2 Peter 3 it's in the context of God's judgment 2 Peter 3 is one of the most frightening passages about the judgment to come and right in the midst of it it says that he the Lord is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance but he knows when that won't happen And he is just whenever he judges, whether it's the Canaanites or us all at the end.
0: Okay. I suppose maybe to draw into that question a little bit more, um, as we look at the book of Judges, what are the differences between the church and Israel? God's judgment between our society here today, if we consider. ISIS, for example, or we consider the West, or just the wickedness of our society. Um, how does that compare to to the judgments that we see enacted through Israel, and then connected to that in light of Christ's death and suffering as his followers? Is there is there any way that as Christians we can ever fight in a in a just war? So that's a that's a massive question. But I thought we'll just go for it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. Can you just read
0: the first part again? The first part is what are the differences between uh, the church and Israel, God's judgment back then versus today. Okay.
1: um, There is clearly a parallel between Israel and the church, which is to say they're both called God's people. And the language that was used of Old Testament Israel is in the New Testament used of the church. Um, However we just got to be rather careful before we simply say well if Israel did that I should do that because there are some significant differences as well Um, the Bible is a book of uh, progressive revelation and God working and revealing his purposes and will more fully and working in different ways Um, so in the New Testament for example um, There are aspects of what Israel did, because Israel was not just the group of God's people, it was also a nation. It needed judges, it needed organization, administration, it needed kings. I mean, the church to some degree needs administration and so on, but you don't need to be creating a justice system. You don't need to have cities of refuge. Uh, We don't have kings. Uh, so there are there are lots of very significant differences. Um, and one of the key differences is this question of how God used the old people, Old Testament people of Israel, sometimes as agents of judgment, um, and sanctioned them using violence in God's name. But Christ in the New Testament would have nothing to do with violence so that when peter took out his sword cut off the uh, high priest servant's ear jesus healed the ear and he specifically repudiated christians believers taking up the sword Um, because in the new testament it's very plain that the the right to use the sword is for the state not for the church okay so there are aspects of old testament israel That connected to the fact it was a state not just God's people we are not a state we are God's people we are the church and the sword is not part of our armory the physical sword okay so uh, the church should we we are in fact told to pray for those who persecute us Uh, we're told to witness to them we're not told to take up the sword against them okay then there's a second question about can there be a just war well in The New Testament, it's plain, there's a principle that God has given the sword for uh, those he's put in authority in the state, the magistrate, the, the governor of the state, has the right of the sword, which is to say, in a sinful human world, we need institutions, we need government, we need police, we need people Uh, to do things you wouldn't in a world that wasn't fallen. But we live in a fallen world and the Bible is very realistic. So there is a just use of the sword that is put in the hand of the authorities. So whether or not a state uses this, capital punishment is clearly within the right of a state to exercise in the case of, of instances of murder, for example. But it is also in the right of a state to use, uh, to, to, uh, to fight wars. Now, that does not mean that states all go to wars for good reasons. But, um, and the moral issues are always confused. And some Christians, there's a whole line of Christian thinking which says in no in no instance will I take up the sword for the sake of the state. Uh, and um, I would say, you see, it's interesting because our gener- my generation, and your generation currently, haven't really had to face this issue. But my father's generation and my grandfather's generation, they certainly had to face that issue. Mm-hmm. You know, World War I, World War II, uh, you can easily duck the issue of whether there was ever a, a right t- for a state to take up the sword. Now, I think there is a right for the state to take up the sword, but I don't think it absolves us of our individual responsibility to be very careful before we think that this is a, a just war to fight in. Um, however, I would say that I'm very grateful that Hitler was resisted. And you ought to be grateful that Hitler was resisted, I think. Because you'd be living in a very different world if Hitler wasn't resisted. Now, does that mean that everything that went on in World War Two was right? No. But I have no question that uh, the end of the Third Reich was the judgment of God. No question at all. Um, so is, is, does that make it simple? No, it doesn't make it simple. Um, you know, when, when I was a teenager, we used to have sessions like this and then be a, two men at the front, you know, one who'd been a bomber pilot a, and the other who was a pacifist in the uh, conscientious objector. And you actually had the guys who'd faced the issues. Mm. Uh, and please God, you won't have to face the issues uh, but you just should be a bit careful before you have a trite you know a quick immediate oh it's all so simple no it isn't so simple it isn't so simple uh, and you know people went to war in the Second World War and many of them had, most people had no idea what was happening in the uh, in an Auschwitz and so on And when they discovered Auschwitz you know good gracious you think there was real evil but there was evil things done on all sides, as there always are in wars.
0: Hmm. Yeah, indeed, complicated issue. Um, does the book of Judges have anything to contribute to a doctrine of apostasy under the new covenant? Um, if so, how uh, how can we ensure we
1: persevere? Okay... Um, The New Testament speaks more directly to the issue of of apostasy. Um, However, uh, the book of Judges indicates how a people who have the name of being God's people can turn away from God massively. Uh, And that is demonstrated in human history again and again. Um, And there are churches that have the name churches where they don't believe um, in Christ's propitiation on the cross for us. They don't actually believe the Bible's authoritative. They have lost the gospel, though they're still called church, um, or call themselves church, but they're not truly church. So uh, in the Old Testament, you have examples of people who call themselves God's people, who were not behaving as God's people, and that will be true in the New Testament. But if I want to understand the doctrine of a apostasy, I need to look really in the New Testament for a m- much clearer teaching. Uh, and I would just simply, I would in in very summary form say that I don't believe when you're born again of the Spirit of God, you can be unborn of the Spirit of God. Um, that I do believe that um, uh, Christ uh, holds us in his hand and in the Father's hand. And, you know, some people talk about jumping out of Christ's hand. Well, Good gracious, where did that come from? It certainly didn't come from what Jesus said. No, when God takes hold of you truly, you are truly safe. However, the same New Testament challenges us to make sure we are elect. Make your calling an election sure. Isn't that a bizarre notion? I thought I was elect. We make it sure you're elect, which is to say, live as people whom God has laid hold of. Because people whom God has truly elect will actually reflect that in their lives. Now, one of, the, one of the realities of a sinful world and God's people is there are sometimes people who you came to trust and recognized as Christian leaders and brothers and sisters who do reject the faith later. That's very heartbreaking. Um, and sometimes we are left uncertain about their true standing. You, do, you are not called to ascertain everybody else's true standing. You're called to follow Christ with all your heart. That's your job. It's God who will pass judgment. But I do believe that when someone has been truly born again, even if later they fall into great sin, like Samson, I do believe that God will keep them and turn their hearts back to him. Um, so I do believe in the perseverance of the saints but i think the new testament manages to hold together the challenge to make your calling an election sure even while you rejoice in the doctrine of election that's a very brief uh, answer but i think it's really most of the people who agonize about their certainty of standing in christ are i think manifestly believers um, And some people, by personality, will be inclined to struggle with assurance. Mm -hmm. Uh, If if you know anything about William Cooper and John Newton, John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, the converted slave trader, wonderful story. But he had this friend, William Cooper, who wrote a number of songs that we sing, who was deeply depressive and spent years thinking that he was abandoned by God and and had failed and sinned. And so much, it was clearly, A real, there was something about his personality that inclined him to think like that. And John Newton just kept standing there and saying, you're all right, William. God's got hold of you. Uh, And some people just need to be told that again and again and again. But it really helps if you have a clear theology.
0: Mm. Okay. Um, How can we identify defective interpretations of the scriptures? I think this comes from... uh, your comments on some of the commentators they don't all agree yeah, yeah so yeah, yeah. why should we believe right. you Ripper Bentley Taylor as opposed yeah, yeah, to yeah, Tim yeah. Keller versus yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh, maybe a general question for yeah. interpreting scriptures you know what tools can we use to evaluate what commentators are maybe saying and
1: well if I had to choose between Tim Keller and me I'd choose <laughs> Keller <laughs> wouldn't you um, however uh, it is true that no commentator Has the perfect understanding of all scripture. And therefore, at the end of the day, we can't just run because Keller says, or because Carson says, or because Luther says, or because Calvin says. Having said that, we should show significant respect for great and godly men who are extraordinarily gifted that God has raised up. Um, I think that, there's a difference, a signi- very significant difference, between the person who, is, um, who doesn't really believe in the authority of scripture and therefore treats it in a cavalier way. Mm. Um, I-, I will not listen to that person. However, uh, there is here somebody who really does have a high view of scripture, who thinks differently from me uh, on this issue. Um, and I, I think we-, we firstly need to have a humble heart because whatever we think, we might be wrong in that. Uh, But we do need to do as sincere a job as we can to understand it for ourselves and not only stand on the shoulders of others. Mm -hmm. In this particular case, um, I think Old Testament narrative is some of the most difficult part of scripture to handle rightly and helpfully because um, it it is the easiest part of scripture to run away with, uh, Your fancies, Um, and that's and that I think is very unhelpful, but often done. Uh, So we need to try to discipline our understanding by what is what. There are two great dis. The great discipline is context. Okay, the context in the chapter, in the passage, but also the context before. There's so many. You know, if you read. If you preach Judges 4 without Judges 5, you, you will more easily go astray. If you, un- if you start Jephthah when it first refers to Jephthah and don't look at the bit before, you'll miss altogether this business about how Israel was treating God and how Israel had treated Jephthah. Uh, so context helps you to get a control on what you're looking at. But context isn't only in the chapter or in the chapter before. Context is also in the whole of scripture. So I need to look out. So the fact that 1 Samuel talks about Jephthah or Barak or, or Samson uh, and makes reference to him it, it is actually the Spirit's comment on that passage. And if it gets a New Testament comment, the New Testament comment is always the, the, the greater comment than your own. It's the Holy Spirit's comment. So I will allow the, the New Testament comment to have a controlling effect on, that doesn't mean I don't see things that the New Testament doesn't touch on in the passage, but I will see that. So I can't preach Samson in the same way if I see that he's a hero of faith in, in Hebrews 11. I have to say, I can't just write this man off as a, as an, as a, you know, a tremendous failure. And the same with Jephthah. If Jephthah gets into Hebrews 11 my repugnance about the horrendous thing he did cannot be taken to be the ruling um, judgment on Jephthah if the Holy Spirit puts him in Hebrews 11 I've got somehow to go back the same thing happens with Lot who if you read Genesis seems pretty dubious character and you read Peter to Peter and you find three times over that he's described as a righteous man good gracious you could have fooled me and then I go back in the light of 2 Peter and I see, right. So despite the things he clearly got wrong, I mean, what was he doing living, li- living in Sodom? Uh, and, you know, getting close to Sodom and then living in Sodom and uh, you know, something terrible went wrong. And yet the New Testament gives me a control on how I interpret it, which is a long way of saying uh, you need to preach any passage in the light of the whole Bible. Now, in terms of commentators, um, especially if you're going to be a preacher, as some of you are or may become, um, it's a good thing to read the scripture itself first. Soak your mind in the passage. Because you are not preaching Keller. You are preaching judges, I hope, the scripture. And you have the Holy Spirit. But after I've soaked my mind in it, I do read Keller. And I read, fortunately there are some really great commentators on judges. Dale Ralph Davis, do you know Dale Ralph Davis? Mm -hmm. Wonderful uh, American scholar, who wears his scholarship very lightly, and has written a huge amount on Old Testament narrative. And he is a very helpful guide, as long as you can put up with all these American illustrations. baseball the American Civil War he keeps talking about but actually he's always asking I found him so helpful in preaching because he always asks the question what's it here for what's it here for what's it here for some commentators just tell you it's there but they don't ask what's it there for?" so you can have a great commentary that goes into every detail but never answers the questions why is it there whereas Dale Ralph Davis is always answering that question so I find Dale Ralph Davis uh, very helpful, and you find pretty quickly that these commentators don't actually take exactly the same line In fact, they take sometimes alarmingly different lines. Somebody else who's a very helpful judge is Barry Webb um, After a while you begin to learn that certain men have particular gift uh, And I think Dale Ralph Davis does I think Barry Webb does uh, I think Kendall does I think uh, not Kendall um, uh, Keller does I think the thing about Keller is we're all products of where we come from, and Keller is very client. You know, he's very, he's brilliant as an apologist. He's brilliantly in touch with contemporary culture on the east coast of America, uh, but that is where a lot of people uh, are, and he's brilliant at that. Um, I don't think he is. Uh, I, I don't think he's necessarily as weighty a commentator. He probably says it cleverly, but I don't think he's quite as weighty a commentator as Dale Ralph Davis, who's basically, uh, 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 has, uh, his head is soaked in Old Testament. Um, but I would read them all and benefit from them all. Okay. Uh, so I don't mean to knock Keller. I do, as you can see, <laughs> disagree with some of his interpretations. But uh, I would say read them all and, and make your own Judgment, but at the end of the day, if you if you have the responsibility of preaching as much as you possibly can, you need to be listening to Scripture, not to men, primarily.
0: Excellent. Well, you can um, all kind of take that application and take yourself down to the bookstall, and you <laughs> can uh, you can buy a lovely Reader's the ESV, and you can read Judges without the interference of. Uh, man-made verses and you can soak yourself in it and then afterwards you can dig into some Keller and some Dale Ralph Davies and uh, You can you can
1: do all that. Can I just make a comment about study Bibles? Sure. Okay Um, Personally, I find study Bibles are often very useful They often have very helpful little maps uh, and they point out things you might easily have missed Um, I think they're also dangerous I think they really are. When I say dangerous, uh, I I don't mean they're deliberately dangerous. I don't mean they're badly done. But I think they're dangerous. And why do I think they're dangerous? Well, you open the page of your Bible, and there you have a comment. Hmm. You you don't necessarily know who it's by. It's right there on the same page as your Bible. And the danger of study Bibles is they produce people who are devotees of the notes and not the text. Uh, and and that I think is dangerous. Now, are the study Bibles often helpful? Absolutely, but I am hesitant. Uh, You see, when I I pick up Dale Ralph Davis or Tim Keller, I know I'm dealing with this man's comment on this and it's really helpful, but uh, I know it's not part of my Bible. Mm. But the study Bible notes look awfully much as though they're part of my Bible and therefore I can invest in them an authority that does not belong to them. So I I just think you ought to be uh, a student of the scripture, not of the notes at the bottom of the page that weren't inspired by God. Useful though they can be. I've had my rant.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree. And you can get both the normal Bible and the study Bible. (laughs) You know? Well, that's kind of it. Unless, is there anyone with a burning question from the floor that they would want to ask briefly? Yeah, John.
1: Right, the question of law and grace is a huge issue and very important one to have some handle on. The key thing, one of the key things, I think, um, is to observe where law comes in the, in the plan and purpose of God. So in the Old Testament, what chapter in Exodus does the law come? Exodus 20. Okay, there's a fair bit of Exodus before you get to the law. The law was given at Mount Sinai. The law reflects the underlying character of God and principles, but it was not given to make the Israelites God's people. It was given to them because they already were God's people. Um, Now that is a really, really fundamental principle. They didn't keep the law to become God's people they had been rescued by God's sovereign purpose out of uh, Egypt and brought across the Red Sea they were God's people and it was because they were God's people he gave them the law so nobody makes it to God by being obedient and keeping the law but people who experience God's grace want to please and serve the God who saved them so that way round makes all the difference and it's a fundamental principle So if you treat the Old Testament law as the Pharisees did, as a means by which you make the grade, you are always going to miss the purpose of the law, and you're going to end up with just a list of rules. But if you throw away the law, you know, I'm saved by grace, law is irrelevant. Well, why is it that in the New Testament epistles, you have this pattern that you have this tremendous theological explanation of some issues or a whole lot of issues and then at some point, like at the end of Romans, Romans 12 he then says that this is how you should live in the light of what he's been saying and just about every epistle has that structure in other words, here is the doctrines of grace and here is how you should live in the light of them they always have an implication for how you live Uh, so grace precedes law nobody makes it to god by obedience we make it by grace by christ's death for me but christ's death for me sets me free to be his child and to show his family likeness and the law gives me a pattern of his family likeness now then there are issues what do we do with old testament laws some of which you know don't murder you can take off the hook and others of which you know, don't mix two types of fabrics. You think, hang on, uh, how do I take that off? And actually, um, the point about Old Testament law is that it reflects fundamental features of God's character, but it is applied at a particular time before Christ came. For example, the law included the whole sacrificial system So we don't go running around offering animal sacrifices because all the sacrificial system and the associated things of the temple and the priests and the Levites, etc., were all connected with pointing to what Christ was going to do at Calvary. Christ having done it at Calvary, we go back to Calvary again and again. And when we go back to the Old Testament, I remember as a student having John Lennox, you ever heard of John Lennox? Yeah. Uh, Come and talk on Leviticus. I almost didn't go. You know, I thought, well, that sounds really off the wall and boring. And he preached Christ from Leviticus. Because he showed us how what Leviticus provided in ways of sacrifice, in all these different sorts of sacrifice, Christ is amazingly the one who fulfilled the whole lot. And you went away worshipping Jesus. And that's what we're meant to do. So the Old Testament law points forward. And there are some issues that are difficult to kind of disentangle. But. There is always an abiding principle under every Old Testament law. So take the mixing of fabrics uh, and the mixing of seeds and all sorts of things. You gotta realize that they lived in the context of nations around who were into fertility cults. And the idea of fertility cults was you induce the God to make the land fertile by kinda showing him the way. You mix things. So you mix cloths and you mixed f- seeds and you had cult prostitution, which was all a way of trying to induce the God to make things fruitful. A- and what, what the Old Testament law is saying there, I think, I- is that actually don't follow the practices of pagans, reli- pagan religions which are trying to induce God. Okay. So the fact that my shirt is made of polyester and cotton is not a sin. Okay, for me to wear it, if you know, and there are that was just one example. So, but but there are abiding principles underlying every Old Testament law. The abiding principle we have to take and apply, like for example, the Old Testament provides. If you have a, a, a building, a house, you build a parapet round the roofs because the roofs were flat. Now I don't have a flat roof, and I don't need to build a parapet. But the principle is I have to take reasonable responsibility for the effect I have on other people. And that applies to how I drive my car on the road today. So you see the principle. Uh, uh, the, one other thing. Um, Paul takes the business of the ox being allowed to eat the grain while it ground, pulled round the big wheel, grinding the grain. And he applies it. He says, this is written for us. And you look at it and think, well, I haven't got an ox. But he applies it to the, um, the, the right of a New Testament Bible teacher to be supported financially. And he says there's a principle here that was written down for us. It's written down in terms of oxen. He applies it in terms of Bible teachers. And he says, that, uh, so there's a principle that is embedded even in some pretty obscure aspects of Old Testament law. Now, th- that isn't just, you know, I know it's more complicated but I, I think those are important kind of directors to follow. Okay. Andre, on the switch. Okay, if we were living in the 16th century at the time of the Reformation and we asked ourselves how was this passage interpreted in the last 400 years you would end up with the weirdest possible uh, interpretations. What I'm trying to say is that the fact that the last 400 years say people have tended to interpret it in such a way is not an infallible guide. Okay, the Middle Ages uh, they, they, the scholars interpreted scripture largely allegorically and they came up with the most weird I mean mostly they didn't preach the Bible and when they did look at the text they used it in the strangest possible ways and what Luther and Calvin began to do was to go back to the text, it was revolutionary Zwingli gets up in his pulpit in Zurich and starts to preach through a book in the Bible well they hadn't been doing that for centuries So, all I'm saying is that the immediate history of interpretation is not an infallible guide. However, however, you actually have a legacy of people who've been teaching the Bible seriously for hundreds of years. So, there is some real value. But just don't make it your God, you know, that's what I preach. Don't preach Carson, don't preach Stock, don't preach Keller. Now, they will help you to preach the text well, but be careful that you don't preach them. So we, we've got to have some sense of, of discernment, and ultimately, when I preach, I am responsible. I can't just blame Carson or whoever. Okay, so I, you know, I once, I sat in an airplane flying to India to do Bible uh, preaching training, and I had a book by a very well-known Uh, Bible teacher, and the chapter I read listed the 150 commentaries every pastor should buy. Okay, 150 commentaries every pastor should buy. And I read it, and I was landing in New Delhi, and I knew these guys spoke Hindi, not English. At that time, there were about four commentaries in Hindi. And uh, what was I going to stand up and tell them? Right. Now, you chaps, there there are 150 commentaries they sell in the States you need to get. Well, A, they don't speak English. B, or at least rudimentary, not well enough to understand a commentary. And secondly, they don't have the money. 150 books in their lifetime. Well, they'll never have that. So what do you teach them? You teach them that you have the Bible, the text of the Scriptures in their language, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have such good models as God has given you about how you take the Bible seriously and teach it. And you have to believe that the Spirit can guide through the scriptures somebody who doesn't have a pile of commentaries. I'm not arguing against commentaries. I use them all the time. Okay, but you're preaching the Bible. So the man in India, God hasn't made a mistake. The man in India can preach the Bible powerfully. Sure, that's a full answer, but
0: we'll take one final one. So here you go.
1: okay um that's a very good principle a very good question um and the new testament is amazingly helpful <laughs> uh, because actually our days are really not so different from the new testament days and the apostle paul for example what was the government in his day like it was nero nero was as nasty piece of work as you've ever met i mean he murdered his mother his his children, um, his f- members of his family, let alone illuminating his gardens at night with burning Christians. This man was absolutely horrendous. And Paul says, Submit yourself to every authority established by God. Um, and it's very interesting looking at Paul's attitude to, this, to the authorities in the New Testament. Uh, because he, his submission did not mean he did not appeal to them to do right for example the Romans were about to flog him and he said hang on I'm a Roman citizen he was using a right he had in Roman law and actually he established protection for Christians in a significant degree on a several occasions uh, a protection that actually meant the gospel work could go on less hindered okay but eventually he was executed by Nero now so I think we have prince there is principle of respect for the authorities even bad authorities however that doesn't mean we are blind to when they act unjustly and uh, I think it's, it's interesting that Paul used his civil uh, he appeals to Rome uh, he appeals to Caesar that's a a right he had in Roman law and God used that to take him to Rome so he sits chained to these prisoners telling them the gospel these uh, soldiers telling them the gospel in the heart of the Roman Empire So God has his hand on situations where rulers are deeply unjust and what we should do is pray for them. The scripture is very clear you should pray for those in authority and I think very often Christians don't. We should pray for those in authority but I think we are legitimately to use uh, the, the freedoms we have when we think the government has you know acting in a foolish and ungodly way as of course all governments will but also rejoice and thank God uh, that actually governments also get other things pretty right Uh, and it's important as Christians our relationship with those in authority is not just strident complaint you you understand if if all you do is shake your fist at them and complain uh, you need to pray for them and express appreciation when they do do things that you think wow that's good so recently our parliament voted uh, on assisted suicide, basically euthanasia, and overwhelmingly voted against it. Mm. Well, hey, that's astonishing, because on most moral issues, our leaders are uh, you know, well down the slope. But actually, it's, it's, it's something wonderful. It's a really a great decision. Uh, and we ought to be writing to our MPs and saying, thank you, 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 you stood up for something absolutely important. So we must not just be complainers and criticizers.
0: Okay, I think that'll bring our, our Q&A to an end. Thank you very much, uh, Rupert.